You'll take your Bibles this morning and open to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. I was thinking this week about how the holidays take it out of me. Do the holidays take it out of you? What is it that they take out of us? Just about everything, don't they? I was thinking of the different things that I participate in during the holidays, and I jotted down a few of them to see if they match your extra activities. I figured that we drive more in one month than we usually do in four. So do you spend a lot of time driving? We entertain more than our usual schedule. We attend a few extra special programs. We stay up later than usual because there's no school. Our eating habits are altered. And then in January, our clothes have to be altered. We run around buying things. I do more shopping at the holidays than I do any other time of year, which isn't saying a whole lot, I'll say. Shopping is stressful for me. We negotiate with our wives about their expectations. Will there be outdoor Christmas lights this year or not? Any men negotiate with their wife about outdoor Christmas lights besides me? Am I the only one? Okay. Five of us. We spend just enough time with extended family to just get a good way into the painful part of recalibration, and then we leave. That's about what happens, isn't it? Just enough time for it to be painful, or really painful, and then we go. So we never quite get to the other side, which is where all the fun is. You know, I always talk to people about the tunnel of chaos. When you get with people and you argue, there's always the nice side of the other side of the argument. When you come out of the tunnel and you have a good time together, but our meetings with our families are so short, we often don't get to the other side. Well, there are some great joys that come with the holidays, but there's also the necessity for a good, bit of, a good bit of endurance. A good bit of endurance. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. If you go back in chapter 11 of Hebrews, it's called the what chapter? Chapter 11 is called the what chapter? The faith chapter. Because it talks about the people of God prior to the coming of Christ. It talks about how they acted on their faith and how they lived in obedience to God, carrying out His commands in the face of adversity, in the face of difficulty, sometimes in the face of their own death, in the face of death of their loved ones. And so this chapter, chapter 11, is a setup for the main theme of chapter 12, We go through chapter 11 and we read about all these people, Abraham, Moses, Isaac, (coughs) excuse me, Rahab, all these people who exercised faith. And it gets to the end of the chapter 11 and it says that while they exercised that faith, they didn't get to see the fulfillment of its promise. It says that only with us are they actually made complete. Only with us 
is it fulfilled? And that's because of the work of Christ. They were looking forward to Christ and what he was about to do. And all of that, <coughs> excuse me, all of that would make a very good sermon to talk about. Um, but it's not what I'm going to talk about this morning. They were looking forward to something. They acted on their faith. They continued in acting on their faith to the end. They didn't stop. They had, they had to have some endurance to do the work that they did. This is what we must do as well. We have to have endurance. We have to have endurance to get through what we are called to do by God. But we're tired. We're tired. Something has taken the strength out of us. Something has taken the wind out of our sails. Why is that? Why is it that we're tired? What is it that we don't understand about the activity that we're involved in? What is it that we don't understand about the nature of the work that we're involved in? Well, there are a lot of things that Christians today don't understand, or many of us don't understand, that we're involved in. We're participating in things we don't even realize we're participating in. How many of you know that as a Christian you're at war? Right? You're at war. How often are you at war? Occasionally? Quite often? Constantly. You're constantly at war. We're constantly fighting against, battling against sin and Satan and an enemy. Many Christians today don't know that they are building and being built into something. Thank you. I have one. Now I have two. Thank you. I have had a cough for six weeks, and if I launch into a fit, I will take this off and work with that so that I can pull it away, okay? But so far, God is good. So many Christians don't know that they are building and being built into something. The Scripture said we are being constructed into a house, a building, a holy sanctuary in which God will dwell by His Spirit. And that there are gifts given to us and gifts given to the church to accomplish that work. Many Christians don't know that they're part of an interdependent body, that they are a hand, an arm, a leg, an ear, that they are part of a body, that we are together a part of the body of Christ. And so we have these kind of uh, occasional unconscious awarenesses. Oh, that's weird. I have a relationship with Rachel Pearson. She's my, she said something to me, and it's affecting me spiritually. You know, and so what is that all about? You know, Rachel is an influence on my life. And so they don't realize consciously that they're part of a body. What I want to talk about this morning is that Many of us don't realize that we're part of a race, a race of endurance, a running race, a race of endurance. And therefore, we occasionally feel fatigue. And then we wonder, why am I tired? Why am I tired? And it's because we're not conscious of it. 
We're not training ourselves to be aware of what's happening in our lives spiritually. And so let's read this morning Hebrews 12, (coughs) excuse me, 1 to 17. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten The exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we, have, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled." That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. The introduction to this section of Scripture is a follow-up to chapter 11 that introduces the analogy of the race. And so he says, lay aside the encumbrances and the entanglements of sin and run the race. And it's going to be an endurance race. It's going to be a long race. So you can't carry extra baggage and you can't be tangled up in things because those things will drag you down. The analogy follows all the way through this first part of the chapter, through verse 17 that I read. And what follows this beginning section, this introductory verse, is the process of laying aside our sin. The process of laying aside our sin. We are supposed to consider Jesus' endurance of hostility. That is, his willingness to endure the cross as as a design to endue us with endurance. Jesus, as our example, 
is designed to endue us with endurance. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, Jesus saw before him a reward set. Now, he isn't the same as us. What's different about Jesus? What's different about Jesus in this whole process? He's fully God and fully man, but what's different about him in relation to us aside from that? Huh? (laughs) He's sinless. He's perfect. That's exactly right. And so Jesus, as he's struggling against sin, he's not struggling to eradicate his own. But he's struggling against outward sin, the opposition outside. And it isn't to say he was not tempted. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin, right? But Jesus chose to obey his Father and to endure the cross Because there was set in front of him, the Bible says, a joy, a reward. Something was set in front of him. The joy of the uh, reward of God as God would pronounce his blessing on his son for the work that he did. And God would elevate him in front of all creation. God would elevate him. Right? Well, we have this same promise. We see it in Christ, but we have that promise set before us. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We have the promise of a joy set before us, of sharing in the glory of Christ, of sharing in the, the benefit that he incurred upon himself, that he brought on himself as he did this obedient act to God, uh, in obedience to God. <coughs> and Jesus also endured the cross because he loved us. So in one sense, we are part of the joy that was set in front of him because he loved us. As I was reading this chapter in preparation, I was reading about the resistance of sin in verse 4, where it says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And I've always thought of this in the past in terms of my own sin. How many of you think of that verse in terms of your own sin? Right. I've always thought of that in terms of my own sin. And as I read it, I thought, well, Christ wasn't striving against his own sin. So there is a there is an understanding in the comparison that there is sin that's outside as well. And it is talking about our own sin as well. But it's also talking about the sin that's outside of us. 
We have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in our striving against sin. Well, as you're trying to stop yourself from sinning, is it likely that somebody's going to kill you? It's not, is it? So it's obvious that this verse is talking primarily about our struggle against sins that are outside of us or the sins that we, may, we perhaps share with those around us when we struggle against them. This more clearly defines what is meant by running the race. It is our struggle against sin. We make an enemy of sin. The Greek word here is the same word that we use to form our word to be antagonistic. To be antagonistic. Our struggle against sin is antagonism against sin. We are the enemy of sin. We are in opposition to sin. It means that we take a red-hot poker and we poke it in the eye of sin. Right? Antagonize. You're the enemy. You're the enemy. Sin is our enemy. We don't mollycoddle our enemies. We don't carry our enemies around on pillows. We make them hurt. Right? Right? Anybody maybe carry around your sin on a pillow? I know I have. And I know you have. We stick the red hot poker in the eye of our sin. But it's not just our sin. We stick the red hot poker in the eye of the sin that everybody else is carrying around on their pillow. Don't we? We're antagonistic against it. It's our enemy. And what happens when we stick the red hot poker in the eye of the sin that somebody else is carrying around on their pillow? They say, thank you. Thank you so much. Don't they? No. This is why we get opposition. This is why we get resisted. But we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. This is why John the Baptist, when he pointed out Herod's sin and he took out the red-hot poker and he said, you have your brother's wife. What did Herod do? Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you for pointing that out to me. So nice. I was talking with someone recently about the wickedness of evangelical feminism. And the elicited response was laughter. Laughter at me. I was the subject of ridicule. Why? I poked my stick in the eye of the sin. It's my enemy. It's my enemy. The discipline of God is given to us to encourage us and to add endurance to our lives. 
How did the recipients of the book of Hebrews forget the admonition about being treated as sons? He says to them, you forgot. You've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. How did they forget? Did you know these people in two chapters ahead, chapter 10, these were the same people who had shown sympathy to prisoners and had joyfully accepted the seizure of their property, knowing that they had a better possession? How could they have possibly forgotten We haven't had our property seized, and we forget, don't we? We forget the work that God does in us through this race that we're running. We forget the comfort and assurance and grace that's given to us through this race that we're running. And it's not just... Here's another way to another thing about this verse, you know, just as you're thinking about uh, about sin being internal or external in this chapter. Think about the discipline of God and whether or not it is simply a matter that God withholds it or we reject it. Is it a matter of God withholding it or us rejecting it? Because the turn of the chapter now comes to the point of what happens when we reject his discipline. So is it God withholding his discipline from us, or is it us rejecting his discipline? How do we reject discipline? How is it that we could reject discipline? Well, we reject discipline by rejecting obedience, by rejecting the cross that we are supposed to take up daily as we follow Jesus Christ. That's how we reject discipline. But God has designed discipline, particularly the discipline involved in this race of being in opposition to sin in our lives as a way to pour out his grace on us. I'm going to talk about this more later, but they're really that's really opposite to everything we see in evangelicalism. The idea that a primary means of grace is our work of poking the stick in the eye of sin is completely opposite to what evangelicals believe and certainly to what they would practice. So the discipline of God is given to us to encourage us and to add endurance. And sometimes then we get tired. And sometimes our joints start to wobble and start to get weak and fail. And so the Holy Spirit tells us what? Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. Strengthen them. Make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. We cannot run a race with weakened and swollen joints, can we? Cannot run a race with weakened and swollen joints. 
So I want to read you what John Calvin writes about this. Nothing, nothing will more weaken us and more fully discourage us than through the influence of a false notion to have no taste for God's grace in adversities. This is what I was talking about with evangelicalism. No taste for God's grace through adversities. There is therefore nothing more efficacious to raise us up than the intimation that God is present with us even when he afflicts us and is solicitous about our welfare. You understand that? Nothing should encourage you more than to know that even when God disciplines us, he's pouring grace on us, like healing oil constantly for our welfare. But in these words, he not only exhorts us to bear afflictions with courage, but also reminds us that there is no reason for us to be supine and slothful in performing our duties. For we find more than we ought by experience how much the fear of the cross prevents us to serve God as it behooves us. So we're fighting constantly against taking up our cross and following Christ. Because we're afraid of the adversity that is going to come when we take the stick and poke it in the eye of sin. So we're afraid of that adversity. And what he's saying is, we should rather be glad for it, because in that adversity, God will pour his grace on us. He'll immerse us in his grace and his goodness. Many would be willing to profess their faith, but as they fear persecution, hands and feet are wanting to that pious feeling of the mind. Many would be ready to contend for God's glory, to defend what is good and just in private and in public, but to do their duties to God and their brethren, but as a danger arises, and to do their duties to God and their brethren, but as danger arises from the hatred of the wicked, as they see that troubles and those many are prepared for them, they rest idly with their hands as it were folded. So we're afraid. Because we see what's in front of us. Were this extreme fear of the cross removed, and were we prepared for endurance, there would be nothing in us not fitted and adapted for the work of doing God's will. And that, that is the work of faith in our lives. Believing that God will give grace as we obey him. As it comes to the point of the later part of that verse where he talks about our joints are, are uh, being put out of joint, our legs, um, Calvin says something very interesting. He says, lest that, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, or Calvin says, lest halting should go astray, that is, lest by halting or by being weakened, you should at length depart far from the way or be put out of joint he calls it halting when men's minds fluctuate and they devote not themselves sincerely to god so spoke elijah to the double-minded who blended their own superstitions with god's worship quote how long halt ye between two opinions when are you going to decide 
and it is a befitting way of speaking, for it is a worse thing to go astray than to halt, or it's worse to have your joint go out of joint than just to be sore. Right? So there's a warning. Nor they who begin to halt do not immediately turn from the right way, but by degrees depart from it more and more until having been led into a diverse path to they re- having been led into a diverse path till they may, till they remain entangled in the midst of what Calvin calls Satan's labyrinth. Satan's labyrinth. So what happens is what? We're running the race, our joints get sore. And so the temptation is what? Not to stand up and work them harder in being antagonistic against sin. Our temptation is to coddle them, coddle the sin, get off somewhere, sit somewhere in the corner, and slowly by degrees we become entangled into what Calvin calls Satan's labyrinth. We're caught up in it, and then we're out of joint. We can't run at all. It doesn't happen like that in an instant. It happens by decree, a little at a time, a little at a time, a little at a time. And pretty soon, we're not doing the work of running the race at all. What does it mean to come short of the grace of God in verse 15, we're still in the race analogy. And we can come short of the grace of God, finish short of the end of the race. And the example given to us is Esau. He despised his birthright, trading it for immediate gratification. And then the scripture says that the root of bitterness grows in this kind of soil, rejecting God's discipline, rejecting the opposition that we are to endure as we antagonize sin. The pastors and elders of this church have seen this happen in the lives of people. They have been completely entangled in Satan's labyrinth, and they have rejected the discipline and, therefore, the grace of God available in the work of opposing sin in their own lives and in the lives of those around us, around them. And they become bitter. A root of bitterness grows in their hearts. Deuteronomy 29, verses 14 to 21. Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. For you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you have seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which they had with them, so that there will not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood or bitter, right? 
following after sin. It shall be when he hears the words of this curse, that is the one who does this, that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. So the bitter one says, I have peace here. It's good. It's good here. It's good saying that everything's well when I'm in opposition to God's will. And he grows up bitter. And in verse 20, it says, the Lord shall never be willing to forgive him. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him. It's a sober, sober warning. What does the man say here in Deuteronomy? He says, I have no opposition because I don't poke any, anybody's coddled sin in the eye. So I have no opposition. Grace is easy. It just means do what the world does. I can love idolatry and still have grace. Calvin calls this the alluring hope of impunity. I can have exemption from punishment. I can have my cake and eat it too. And this is the attitude that permeates the easy grace that we find in the church today. The easy grace. Well, I just have grace. And we carry around our pillows and all of our sins on them. And we talk about our grace. And we never do anything to oppose the sins in our own lives And we certainly never do anything to oppose the sins in anyone else's lives. We've got it easy. We've got it easy. I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And that's the grace we have in the church today. I can coddle my sin without worry. Let's talk about some application. We have to understand the nature of what we're involved in. We have to understand the nature of the race that we're involved in. It is an endurance race. It will not end until we die. It is the race of faith And therefore, it is the global or primary means of grace in our lives. There is an enemy that seeks to destroy us as we run this race. And the discipline of God is administered through the opposition that we endure in it. This is a witness of his grace to us. We get encouragement in this grace or in this race from Jesus Christ who ran this race and endured even as he was paying for our sin. And we also get encouragement from those who ran the race before us and those who run the race around us. And so Hebrews 11 is kind of the real precious Bible promise book, right? They believed even though their families were sawn in half. That's really the precious Bible promise book. 
We run this race with a constant work of antagonizing sin. Ephesians 5 says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Constantly taking out the red-hot poker and ramming it in the enemy's eye. Sin. Sin. Destroying us, destroying our friends, destroying our family members, destroying the people around us. It is our enemy. We need to know how to do maintenance. And I think this is the most crucial one. So I've been running quickly through the other ones. This is the most crucial one. We need to know how to do maintenance. Because our limbs get tired, our knees get weak, right? And we have the temptation of being caught in Satan's labyrinth. That's before us. That's the thing that's before us. Now, why do I say that this is the... Why do I say that this is the one that I really want to concentrate on because I think it's the big one? If you were going to define Satan's labyrinth today, what would you say, what would you call it? What would you call that place that we get entangled? What would you call it? I call it positive alternative land. Positive alternative land. That is Satan's labyrinth. We want a positive alternative land where we can get respite from the nasty negatives associated with poking sin in the eye. That's what we want. A place where our aching joints can grow distorted and finally be rendered useless. That's not what we think, but that's what's happening to us as we build positive alternative land it's like a theme park we're all working on right so where do we see positive alternative land where is it well it's positive alternative land in our sermons what do we want our pastors to say to us Where's the grace? Where's the grace? I just told you where the grace was. The grace is poured out by God when we poke sin in the eye. The grace gets poured out by God in the adversity that we experience as we oppose our enemy. That's where the grace is. So what do we say when we ask the pastor, where's the positive thing? Where's the nice thing? What are we asking for? What we're asking him to do is remove the negative things. Let's not talk about sin. Let's not talk about the red-hot poker. Let's not talk about those things. Let's just talk about the positive things. In our entertainment, we want a positive alternative, don't we? Right? Don't we want our movies? What's that football movie? I can't think of it. (coughs) Facing the Giants. Don't we want our movies? 
family-friendly movies? Isn't this what we want? Isn't this what we need? This positive alternative land? But our radio stations... How many of you know that there's a radio station whose motto is the positive alternative, right? I, I see you laughing or scowling. Have you listened to it? Have you listened to the songs? Have you listened to contemporary Christian music? It's positive. It is. Mind-numbingly. I mean, I get more from reading Facebook. Okay? Does that make it clear enough? It's wicked, wicked, wicked. It's positive alternative land. It's Satan's labyrinth. It's the place we've prepared for ourselves so that we can exist and have our spot without opposition. We want our churches to make it fun. Let's have fun. Let's have fun programs. That's what we want. Fun. Entertain me. I want to enjoy it. I want to have a good experience. I want to have more fun at this church than I could have somewhere else. Otherwise, why should I come here? I want fun. Give me fun. We want it in the education for our children. We want it in evangelism. This is the one that always just like trips me out, evangelism. Think about this. First, let's show them that we love them by not poking a stick in the eye of any of their favorite sins. Later, we'll tell them the gospel, whatever that is. And they'll become Christians because we have loved them. Come on. Come on. What is the gospel we're going to tell them? What are we going to tell them later? First, we'll love them. We won't tell them about sin. We'll just love them. And later, we'll tell them, you know, what is that later? The other shoe is going to fall? Oh, yeah, I was loving you earlier, but now here's a big red-hot poker. And I'm going to stick it in the eye of that thing you're holding on your pillow. Now you're going to like it because, hey, I loved you yesterday. Right? It's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. But it makes us feel good. No opposition exists when we can create heaven on earth, right? That's really the problem. Ben read to us First uh, Peter chapter three, and it talked about this world being burnt up with fire. All the positive alternatives are going to get burnt up with fire. Everyone. We are strangers, aliens sojourners here until which time we can get a full network of positive alternatives put in place and then we're at home here 
Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from that flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Endurance. 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 Take an inventory this morning of yourself. I do this. Sometimes I'll be listening to the positive alternative on the radio, and then I'll just say, I just can't listen to that anymore. Take an inventory of your positive alternative influences. And then by faith, strengthen your weakened joints and scrape these barnacles off of yourself. Jettison them. They are the encumbrances of our lives. They are. This will strengthen your weak hands and your knees. And rather than be put out of joint, you'll be healed. How? How? Do we heal ourselves when we put ourselves in the place of obedience to God? No. When we repent of our sins, God meets us. When we humble ourselves, he lifts us up. He pours out his grace upon us right there when we start to do the very thing that we were supposed to do. And lastly, in application, reject those who have nurtured bitterness. Reject those who have nurtured bitterness. When you see somebody who, and we're gonna, I'm going to talk about this as I'm fencing the table for the Lord's Supper today, but when you see somebody who is coddling their sin as a matter of principle, and they are literally entangled in Satan's labyrinth, bitterness is in them. And they will defile you if you hang out with them. So remove yourself from them. There are those who will speak to them, but it isn't a place to hang out. They aren't people to hang out with. Remove yourself from them. Because they are lost They are rejecting the discipline of God. He's giving his discipline in in obedience. We experience his discipline, and they've rejected it. So remove yourselves from them. Let's pray.